clubhouse. Or maybe you're all torn up inside because getting away with murder didn't feel bad at all, no? It felt good. Welcome to The Surgeon's Files, your unofficially official Prodigal Son podcast. I'm Mike Caputo. And I'm Sheila McGann. Tonight we're discussing the season two premiere of Prodigal Son. It's all in the execution. Shitting! <laughs> Sound effects <laughs> added by me. Adding to the production value. This week's show was written by Chris Fedak and Sam Sclaver and was directed by Antonio Negrette. Antonio Negrette, a little fun fact, directed another favorite episode I know of yours. He directed Pied de Terre from season one. <gasps> Seriously? That's yeah. amazing. And a pivotal episode in the series. So Chris and Sam must really trust him to give the reins not only to a season two premiere, but I mean, that was episode, I think, nine, uh, maybe in season one. Yes, it was episode nine. Uh, a super pivotal episode in Prodigal Son. It's always interesting to see who the show's showrunners and, and creators and producers trust for kind of pivotal episodes. That was a huge episode for me, like when I went back to rewatch it in terms of just you know, the story congealing in a lot of different ways. For sure. You should stick around to the end of tonight's discussion uh, where we're breaking down the episode because we have an exclusive interview with Prodigal Sons creators, executive producers, and showrunners, Chris Fedek and Sam Sclaver, who also wrote tonight's episode. Chris and Sam were great. And the timing being that it was when we interviewed them, we were one of the first interviews where they got to talk about bringing on Catherine Zeta-Jones to the series and they previewed what her role might be. As always, no spoilers. The show is bringing on a bunch of new people at Claremont. Catherine Zeta-Jones was literally breaking news when we were sitting down to speak with Chris and Sam. So it was really exciting. I think we were actually their first interview. There was a print interview that came along with the news release, but I think we might have been their first live audio interview after that was released. So it was really exciting to hear them talk about it. And they were excited. For sure. And it's a great story. And they get into, because we asked them, how do you cast someone like a Catherine Zeta-Jones for a network TV show? And there's a great little story there. So you definitely want to check that out. Among the things that we're actually most excited here at the Surgeon's Files are the exclusive interviews we're going to be looking to bring you each week. So, for instance, this week you're getting Chris and Sam, the show's co-creators. Next week, we're going to be speaking with Frank Hartz, who plays JT Tarmel. Definitely stay tuned for that. We also created a Spotify playlist. You can enjoy some mood music to help you along as you wait the days in between the episodes are released. Uh, it's actually called The Surgeon's Files. So that's an easy name to remember. That's the name of this podcast. Awesome. I mean, that's a fun thing that we're starting here at Pod Club House. It's, a, it's actually a little project that Sheila is spearheading for us, making playlists for shows. So there's a Yellowstone playlist. If you're into Yellowstone, I think you started one for The Stand. There is. So Yellowstone is called Yellowstone Tunes. Everything is brought to you by Pod Clubhouse. So if you search Pod Clubhouse in Spotify, you'll find all of those playlists. So there's one for The Stand. There's one for this and Yellowstone. You are correct. And while you're there, you should definitely subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a podcast episode. Playlist, podcast, we got it all over at Spotify. Go get your podcast network fill over there. Not sponsored by Spotify, but we should be. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Let's get into tonight's episode. You are a true crime fan. We talk about it all the time, maybe to a disturbing degree. Justice <laughs> killing with authentic French guillotines. What does that do for you? 
like if this was not like the biggest bang out of the the gate for a new season you know they talk about like sophomore slumps and things like that this has none of that i was i was here for the whole 60 minutes second seasons of shows do notoriously lag behind because much like musicians albums the creators of the show have so much time to put together the first season right because they're coming in with a brand new idea so they have all that ramp up time as they're getting the show on the air you have a lot less time to do production from when you end season one to when you're putting season two on the air i didn't see any of that in this episode the other large crime part of this was the immurement that happens in the sex dungeon basement. If I say immurement and someone is like walled in behind a wall, what makes you, what comes to mind for you? Casco Amontillado. Hell yes. You, you have to read a lot of things in high school. The Casco Amontillado was one of those things that always stuck out for me from all of the things that I read. I, I read it in ninth grade English. Same. I remember I had a football coach as an English teacher. He was not a mental giant, but he did. <laughs> show me Casco Amontillado though and I I mean that story has stuck with me since I was what then 13 14, 14. Yeah, yeah like 14 or so yeah the idea of being walled in alive it's the above ground version of drowning it, it's it's terrifying to having the two of those that are very storied very fabled in the crime world I was definitely enjoying it is that the right term yeah I think I think for <laughs> this audience that's definitely the right term I mean you may want to be more reserved in you know if you're if you're going to a cocktail party at large but if you're hanging out with some prodigies you're hanging out with some prodigal son fans uh yeah I think you could definitely say you enjoy the the gore and the murder and and everything that they bring to it because they do it so goddamn well it feels authentic that you know it's not like they just said hey let's just like throw an immurement they the, the way that they built it it was it was perfect let's do a little murder corner maybe this will be something we do each week <laughs> we'll keep a catalog of the weapons that they use let's go back uh, rapid fire back and forth i'll start they use authentic french guillotine a ninth century norse axe yeah i mean not to be that guy it's ninth century not tenth there is a <laughs> a shimitar that apparently you can use at harvard fencing there was a nail gun in the sex dungeon. I didn't see too much in the sex dungeon of actual, like, weapons. But Malcolm's cabinet is something to behold. His murder cabinet? I always get a kick out of when there is a visitor to the apartment who, who takes notice of it. And honestly, you can't ask for a better fan of murder weapons than a fan of the fatal arts like we got in tonight's villain or tonight's killer, Tom Henry Glanton. A classic three-name killer. What did you think of the executioner as far as a villain goes? I liked how he portrayed himself. You know, he was this guy out seeking revenge for himself. He's really atoning for the crime he committed. So I like the fact that they brought in this executioner. It was so smart. It was just, that's what I really love about the show, that none of it feels put on. Like I said, even bringing in a murement, like you, you can't just bring that in and, and just plunk it there. Like you have to have the right lead up. And I felt like the executioner had the right lead up. The psych eval notwithstanding that would have caught some of these tendencies in him, I, I liked how calm he was about the situation. He was, he just needed to atone himself for what he did, the role that he played in the, in the wrongful killing of uh, Millicent Lee's husband. I 100% agree. It, it is a genius of the show that they can use things like a ninth century Norse axe or a shimitar or a guillotine, and it never 
you never really step back when you're in the moment and go, that's so unbelievable or that's yeah, so hokey. there's no eye rolls. Yeah, <laughs> it, it all feels right. When when the antique gun was used to blow out the window with the landmine bomb last season, that all felt like, of course, of course, that's exactly what is happening in the situation, which is a testament to the genius of Chris Sam and the other writers on the show that they can do that and not not make you go, ah, oh, this show is so stupid. It's so unbelievable. It's not. It's totally believable it's in the totally moment. It's totally believable. And the the fact that Malcolm is so over the top with his crime solving ability and like Danny even says that she goes like the closer he gets to the killer, the crazier he gets. It feels right. It feels good. Well, they have a saying, right? If you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. And <laughs> Malcolm, in you know, I don't know that he loves murder or I don't know that he would say lo- loves murder, but he definitely loves catching killers. And because of that, he has an enthusiasm for the job. And I think it really sweeps you up in it because he's so charismatic martin is so charismatic gil is so charismatic danny jt all of these people are they're so charming and so committed to their jobs to the thing that they do you just go along with them you just kind of you know let go and relax and trust that they're going to take you on a fun journey and they always do agreed the thing that i liked about the executioner was that he had a code and it was perfectly summarized when Malcolm asks, asks him, can I get last words? And he very solemnly says, well, of course. You know, it wasn't that he was killing just to kill, right? You, you, you said the word atonement. I think that's perfect. The idea that the wrong killer was out there and needed to be dealt with, every, everything that he did operated within the code. The idea that the NYPD went on and... and and intentionally so were, were baiting the wrong killer to draw him out was perfect because Malcolm understood the idea that he had a code and that he was going to live and act by it. And, and he did. And he was consistent with it, even when he was trying to kill Malcolm there at the end. And that there are shades of gray to that, right? Where Millie was less guilty of crimes than Boyd. So she had a respectable, clean decapitation death. Boyd not only killed her husband, but then let an innocent person be executed for his crimes. So he had to pay an extra price. So I I like, I actually like the executioner a lot because of his justice code. I think it's something that makes him more complex versus just someone that's bloodthirsty or, you know, it just enjoys killing. You mentioned the psyche valve. I don't know that a psyche valve would catch someone like the executioner because he's so fitted for this job. Job. The questions you're going to ask someone are, are you going to carry out the duties that are assigned to you? Do you have a problem taking a life if a jury of the person's peers has found them guilty and the state warrants death for it? The executioner is going to be very okay with that. It fits exactly what the executioner believes is the right thing to happen. There is a crime and there is a punishment that fits each crime. Fair enough. No, I mean, you raise a really good point because like he's supposed to carry it out, you know, regardless of his own personal feelings, much like like in the military, you have to follow orders, whether you agree with them or not. Right. And and if you happen to enthusiastically agree with them, all the better. You just look like a better employee. Right. I mean, the executioner probably to the state of Texas just looked like a guy who was really good at his job. And he's really, probably really... in the exceeds expectations category of the evaluation. <laughs> he, he probably has one of those great parking spaces. You give your employee yes. of the month at the front mm-hmm. of like the death jail or wherever the penitentiary is where in texas where they execute the prisoners i also found it funny that they use texas because that's like the capital punishment murder capital of the world there was a little 
little shade being thrown to Texas, you know, and, and, and Caroline and Paul are dear friends. They're my partners at the clubhouse. I, I felt a little bad at some of the shade being thrown upon Texas. I was offended for their honor. I would have rather them used Florida, honestly. Yes. Well, Florida is now the punchy bag of the United States. Right. And so why not just pile on? I was a little offended on behalf of Texans, the, the broad brush the show was painting them with. Just so people know, if you're listening, we don't really recap the episode because we're assuming if you're listening to an after show podcast, you have watched the episode. If you haven't and you don't want to be spoiled for what happened in tonight's episode, you should stop listening now. Go watch the episode and then come back. That being said, we're going to talk about things that happened. Uh, let's talk about Malcolm Bright. Martin's speech at the end of the episode about the thrill of getting away with murder. It was the audio that we played here at the top of this episode. Do you think that that well summarized the glimpses that we had of Malcolm and his sinister smile all throughout this episode? I think Martin hit some nails on the head that was hitting a little too close to home for Malcolm. Yes. The glints that we saw of this sinister, murdery Malcolm, anytime that he caught himself within the a reflection, like the knife, this is Malcolm's transformation. I mean, that's that's kind of like my prediction for season two is that he has a weird Martin-esque quality to him that is breaking loose. I went into tonight's episode expecting Ainsley to be the one who was going on a journey of becoming the quote-unquote prodigal daughter. But yeah, the reflections really painted uh, Jekyll and Hyde, your inner evil looking back at you, you know, peering through your eyes. But honestly, it was the final flashback of Malcolm over Endicott's body where he breaks out to a smile. Yes. I mean, all all that was missing was him licking some of the blood off of his lip. It was it was truly terrifying. And Tom Payne has such piercing eyes and he has such an expressive face. It was some next level thing to watch that that sneer break out on his face, I thought. And then also juxtaposing it with the smiles of Martin as he's being arrested back in, you know, the very early parts of season one where we get the flashback. I think it was like the beginning of episode one, you know, that juxtaposition of, of showing the same type of enjoyment. The only way a serial killer gets famous is, is when they're caught. So there's a certain joy in also being caught for a serial killer because now they can, you know, they can show the world all the things that they've done. Right. That's the ego stroke for them, right? Yeah. And it's just another part of the puzzle that makes a serial killer sort of this anomaly of human nature. We can never lose sight of some of the foundational things that the show teaches us in the very earliest parts of season one. The flashback where, where Martin is on his knees, you know, holding young Malcolm by the shoulders right before he gets led away, talking about how he loves him so much because they're the same. The idea of them being the same, that's the thing that has really haunted Malcolm his whole life and has always been a motivation for him to turn away from his father and what his father did here it definitely seems like there's some cracks in the dam i mean i don't know that the little dutch boy has enough fingers to plug all the, the holes in the like you know kind of popping through uh it's going to be interesting to see what malcolm's journey is that scene with nicholas where he was dismembering the body he was really leaning into some of those tendencies that martin had and i use leaning in because he's had them all along and that i think also lends itself to sort of the over-the-top quirkiness that he he brings to his crime solving ability I mean, there's also that sinister side that he can use his powers for good or for evil. I researched, I can find no significance to the lake in Estonia where Malcolm has Nicholas Endicott's body dumped. I'm wondering who Malcolm is connected to in Estonia and that it would have the ability to dump a body. What a random place for Malcolm Bright to dump a body. I mean, there's a whole East River there that has, from time immemorial by the mob, been used to dump pieces of bodies. Yeah. You burn off the fingerprints, you remove the teeth. 
uh, you know what? You, know, you have a lot of true crime experience too under your belt. It sounds uh, like I've got I've got a, an Italian American background uh, raised <laughs> raised in the unions of New York City. That's where that's that's more my background. My more, my background was more on the ground learning as a child. That's not what this podcast is about. Honestly, I don't know that we're going to get any more information about the Estonia connection, or if it was just kind of a fun thing the show threw off as just a random Malcolm fact of of course he knows people in Estonia that can get rid of a body in a lake and who was drudging the lake that they were able to connect Endicott with this crime back in the States. But it's also been several months. So maybe that explains why it's taken, you know, if you wait long enough, if you wait three, four, five, six months, eventually everybody gets found or pieces of a body get found. And there was also a global pandemic on. So maybe they, it wasn't at the forefront of maybe the crime solving abilities. You have to imagine there, there's been a massive manhunt for Nicholas Endicott, alive or dead, right? The guy was painted as being so powerful, as having such high up connections in government, or at least in city government. The things he could do, the the strings he was able to pull to get Martin's uh, swanky digs at Claremont. This is not a guy who can just be allowed to disappear off the face of the map, which is probably why Martin is is guiding Malcolm and telling him that they got to chop up the body, because they have to make him as small a bite as possible to make him get gone because people would be looking for someone as powerful as Endicott, I think. And I think actually to your point just there, that's why he's in Estonia and not in the East River. That's probably fair. I curious. I don't know that I need to know the Estonia connection. It would obviously no. it's always, it would be fun if it just hangs out there as just a weird thing about Malcolm and people he knows. I'm good with that too because I think it just kind of adds to the quirk of his character. As we just mentioned, the show actually advances several months, and so we're seeing Malcolm with using Martin as a telephone a friend in you know clean up the Endicott crime scene. We're we're learning about that in flashback, and we're learning about it in pieces. Is that working for you, or would you have rather the show had picked up right? after Ainsley slits the throat and then Malcolm gets to work. I think the way that they do it with the flashback, it works because it's a, it's an important moment in time and it's going to shape a lot of what happens right now. But to pick up where season one absolutely left off, it's not important for me. That By them bringing it back through flashbacks means that the story is not over. And the show has done a really good job of bringing flashbacks in to flesh out the storyline, you know, with the girl in the box from last season. And they just did it so well that it becomes part of the, uh, it becomes part of what I expect from the show. So for me, it works. There's definitely a instant gratification part of me that wants to see, well, what happened next and show it to me. Don't make me, don't tease me all season long. Don't girl in the box me all season long. There's a little bit of a masochist in me that doesn't mind being strung along and have the flashbacks. And you're right. The show does it so well. It really doles out the line and keeps you hooked so well with the flashback as a narrative device. I don't think I mind it either. More importantly, to your point, and I agree with it, the fact that they didn't just show us in one lump sum what happened, but rather piecemealed some flashbacks probably indicates that they're going to backfill everything that happened from when he began cutting up Endicott through the time jump that we had, right? Because there's going to be Malcolm incidences that happened along the way. He just didn't chop up the body, ship it to Estonia, and then walked away from it. I think the fact that they introduced this as a flashback probably means that it's going to be, if not a full season long exploration, it's going to be several episodes of watching the whole process, which which I'm here for, you know, dole it out for me. And can I tell you that um, earlier today, before we started recording, my neighbor across the way was using like a handsaw and just in prepping for this episode with the handsaw and the sound, I was like, oh my God, like somebody get me out of here. <laughs> you don't really understand 
the glee on Malcolm's face when he's in the sex dungeon with Boyd, when he picks up the handsaw, the, like the bone saw, until the end when you're watching him use a very similar, I mean, it looked almost identical, saw to start to start chopping into Nicholas Endicott's body. It was actually a nice like callback to just earlier in the episode. Like we've seen Malcolm get excited about weapons before, but there was a kind of glee when he changes out the nail gun for the bone saw. For a show that holds back information and makes you really wait for it, makes you really work for it, that was like a nice little bit of instant gratification. Why is he so happy here in the sex dungeon? It's because, oh, because he got to use a bone uh, saw. He knows he knows it intimately. It's, it's like reuniting with an old friend. But yeah, so back to the sex dungeon that you mentioned. The best of all dungeons, by the way, of, of all the kinds of dungeons. <laughs> I think everyone agrees sex dungeon is the best kind of dungeon. Like, I'm going to start unearthing a basement in my house just to put in a sex dungeon now. But You, you and John are going to have a long conversation about how that how Clubhouse cannot uh, cannot pay for those renovations. By the way, that is not a show, that is not a show write off. By the way, so you mentioned the sex dungeon. So um, yes to Malcolm dancing to Donna Summers. I feel love as he is ramping up to that that moment of exultation with the the bone saw. Yeah, I mean, I think we need to know if that's how Tom Payne really dances or if that's just how Malcolm Bright dances. Because I already love Tom Payne. I already think he's fantastic. But if that's how he kind of dances with his like little white man head bop and kind of like a little shoulder action kind of thing, I'm, I'm here for it. I think it's fantastic. We need a thousand or scenes like that because he was feeling it. He was feeling this Donna Summers. He was in the moment. He was like, what does a section to playlist entail? Which is interesting because if you had asked me prior to what Izzy, the record guy, listens to in a sex dungeon, I don't know that I would have guessed it was the same thing that Malcolm would, would chill out to also. Yeah, I wasn't expecting disco, was not. Yeah, a little. It was a nice little character overlap. Like Izzy and Malcolm, they have something in common. Besides dungeon and weapons, they have a love of Donna Summers. Did you notice any difference in how Malcolm solved tonight's crime? Or was he as quirkily focused as usual? I was watching for this because of what he went through at the end of last season. And obviously with the flashbacks and the reflections, it definitely looks like there's like a new level of trauma there because he's seeing his own reflection smiling at him, the Jekyll to his Dr. Hyde looking back at him, which is troubling. But I think the casework looked just the same. That being said, the, the opening with the ledge scene with the penthouse slasher, you know, that's kind of a dark opening. I don't know if you gave me 100 guesses. I don't know that I would have guessed season two opens with Mal with Malcolm on a ledge forlorning his life and his father and his relation to the surgeon. There's some extra stuff going on in his brain now, but I, I thought he handled the case pretty much like a typical Bright, you know, as reckless as he always is, but committed to solving the crime. The the inlays of the, the murdery Malcolm with the, uh, the glints into his alter ego at this point were troubling. He seemed to have a little less control over his tremors. They bubbled up to the surface a couple of times. No more more so really than in prior episodes, but the facial changes, the, the the tremor in the hands, they're all signaling that there's there's trouble underneath the surface, like the control on his complex PTSD might be wavering a little. But just in terms of the intensity with which he throws himself into a case, I felt that that was all there. And, and even just with the cold open of him on the ledge and being tethered with Idris's exquisite not tying abilities, it all felt 
authentic to season one to his abilities. It definitely did. And the, the hand tremor is a nice shout out because we saw in season one, the hand would only begin to tremor when he was feeling extreme stress. It got worse as the season went on and Endicott even calls it out, tells him, tells him that he has to, he should, he should have that looked at. To see it so early in season two is a definite troubling sign that we all want to keep an eye on. And that Danny and Gil and Jessica and JT, they would all probably also do well to keep an eye on that hand tremor. It's a real litmus test for how Malcolm is doing and feeling at a moment. We get a glimpse of Martin at the beginning where he's touting himself as having saved Rikers from COVID. And he also cured uh, Jerbear, his um, his new roommate, via attempted murder electrocution. Did he do this to avenge an offense to his son, do you think? Yeah, I think so. You know, because if he was going to retaliate against Jerry and his cartoons earlier, I think he would have done it earlier. It seemed like it was him throwing the Jerry throwing the shoe at Malcolm and laughing about it that set Martin off. For me, it was a great shout out to Silence of the Lambs. One of my favorite like horror movies, if you can call it a horror movie, because there are definitely instances of gore in Silence of the Lambs, but it really relies more on your brain to make it worse than you're actually seeing. There's the character of Hannibal Lecter, who is a cannibal, but very charming, not unlike the serial killer, Martin Whitley, who is very charming. Clarice Starling is the FBI agent who has to frequently go see Hannibal Lecter to get clues on a new serial killer case that she's working on because Hannibal would have insight into him, much like Malcolm has to do and go see his father constantly and get insight. So there's always, for me, been a, a very Hannibal Lecter, Clarice Starling relationship between Martin and Malcolm. There's a very important scene, to me anyway, in Silence of the Lambs, where the serial killer murderer next to Hannibal Lecter, his name is Multiple Migs. Migs is how I always think of him. Mm -hmm. He throws semen on Clarice. He, like, pelts her with, like, a handful of semen. He giggles about it like like a monster, because he is a monster. Kind of like how Jerry did. Kind of like how Jerry throws the sneaker at Malcolm's head and laughs about it. Hannibal scolds Miggs for being so disgusting and offensive and having poor manners with Clarice, who he treats very kindly, pseudo-sexually, for sure. It's a weird relationship. It's a very kind of father-figure relationship that they develop, but it's also like vaguely sexual also or maybe less than vaguely sexual the next time we see Hannibal we learn Mix has swallowed his own tongue and killed himself that Hannibal using his charismatic mind and, and all of his skills as a psychotherapist uh, which was what he was he was a doctor much like Martin was a doctor a different kind of medicine but still a doctor beforehand he was able to basically talk Miggs into killing himself and he did that to avenge the offense done upon Clarice. This scene and everything that happened with the electrocution was so very much inspired by that. It was a nice homage to it. I, I didn't get to ask Chris and Sam about it, but I have to think it's there has to be some kind of touchstone there because the show definitely pays homage to the things that have come before it. It didn't surprise me. I loved it. But then I like the prodigal son twist on it where it, the murder fails and it actually ends up curing Jerry. I thought that was kind of fantastic. No, I don't think it was an attempted murder. It was the way that he looked at Jerry. It was very murderous when the, the shoe got thrown at Malcolm and interrupted their reuniting after many months. Well, it's attempted murder until you actually kill the person. If you fail, then it's just attempted. That's why I said attempted murder. Yeah, I know. It's, I know we said attempted murder, but I mean, it was it was both in my mind. But I feel like 
this might be like a kinder, gentler Martin kind of oh, emerging. So you think that Martin was actually trying to like reform? You think you took him at his word? Well, he tells Mr. David that it was a miracle. You think Martin was trying to not kill him by electricity? It's a it's a dual edged sword here because I feel like if Jerry died in the attempt, it wouldn't have been like no great loss. Sorry, that's the stand spilling over. Also, also being covered by Pod Clubhouse. Go check it out. Boulder Free Radio Zone. So if he died in the attempt, you know, no great loss. But also, he was very pleased and tickled that the doctors were now following his recommendation for electrotherapy, electroconvulsive therapy. I'm thinking that maybe we might be seeing a little bit of a kinder, gentler Martin. Did I miss a nuance? I think he was trying to kill him. I think it was a silent way for him to do it that he would have plausible deniability. That's why I think he's feigning sleep because sometimes things, you know, you get electrocuted. You know, he wasn't doing it in a way where clearly, you know, if there's like an ice pick sticking out of Jerry's head, well, Martin obviously had to have done it. I think he was trying to kill him in a way that he could somehow claim not being responsible for it. It was a happy accident that it ended up just acting as like electroshock therapy. Martin is not stupid. He he is able to pivot and he's able to make lemonade out of lemons when handed them. Uh, so I think it was more of a pivot to aiding in Jerry's therapy because of how offended he was on Malcolm's behalf at Jerry's antics. But we'll see, though. It's interesting with the character bio that they gave for Catherine Zeta-Jones. And obviously, you can listen to our interview with Chris and Sam. When you add that together with the COVID and Rikers and Jerry and his electroshock therapy, there does seem to be some kind of maybe gathering steam that Martin is trying to be more of a help in this world now than uh, a hindrance. I also took it that he wanted his room back, that if he was able to get rid of Jerry either by death, by electrocution, or by cure, it was a way for him to get his his room back. Yeah, the room just doesn't look the same to me without all the books and the desk and the setting, which he has the room back, but he still doesn't have all of the papers and all his of... Accoutrement all back so we definitely hopefully in uh, episode two we see the cell looking a little more a little more classic martin did we know that martin was a murder weapons collector before tonight i didn't think i knew i that. didn't know i guess it's not surprising but it does add another layer to like father like son so i was not aware that martin was a a fatal arts collector um prior to this i i was a little surprised at the level of detail that malcolm had on like the the guillotine that would be available in the tri-state area oh that didn't surprise me i mean you don't get a wall like that in his apartment and display it so proudly without knowing the very ins and outs nuance of what goes where i if anything i would think i was a little surprised that he didn't actually know who had bought the last authentic french guillotine that actually surprised me more well, he would than have been anything like else eight right? He would have been like eight when it was sold. Yeah, a guy yeah. like that does his homework, though. But yeah, I, you know, I, I think it was a nice little character development for Martin and Malcolm that clearly, how does someone get into collecting murder weapons? Well, my dad used to collect murder weapons. And I, you know, I just seemed right that I would continue the family business. But that was one of those moments where like his face betrayed him. Like with that control on his complex PTSD. And that's when Dresa was like, well, it's the surgeon, isn't it? Like, so there's, there's a telltale sign that he's giving now. The people who are astute to him will start picking up on, I think. I do like the idea that this was another 
crack in the PTSD armor. It's interesting that he didn't hem and haw about going to see his father and they even hold hands and he's reluctant to pull his hand away or he doesn't instantly pull his hand away from Martin when he takes his hand in that scene together. There's a closeness there that these two never had before, or at least on Malcolm's side, to me anyway, it seemed a willingness to be around his father in a way that he really tried hard to reject or only went to go see him begrudgingly all throughout season one anytime a case called for it here he doesn't really hesitate to to go see him up close to get the name of he could have looked up who was the who bought the he could have called christie's or you know whatever auction house sold the thing way back when he didn't need to probably go see his father so i think that's an interesting development to definitely also keep an eye on the willingness to be closer to martin and something probably jessica's gonna have a little bit of a freak out about and that's actually a really good point, too, just even about the physical closeness, too. Speaking of Jessica, did you, Sheila, and everyone listening out there, did you catch the little Dermot Mulrooney farewell in Jessica's first scene of this episode? I probably very inappropriately busted out laughing. Busted out laughing because, like, there's literally billions of songs out there. Why would you pick the one that is directly connected to Dermot Mulroney? It had to be. I mean, we asked Sam and Chris a little bit about this because it made me laugh also. For people who don't know, I Say a Little Prayer for You was a song heavily featured in the movie My Best Friend's Wedding starring Julia Roberts and you guessed it. Dermot Mulrooney. It had to be a nice little shout out farewell uh, to him and, and to Nicholas Endicott's character. Or maybe Jessica subconsciously saying uh, later bitch to uh, Nicholas Endicott. So we learned that Jessica was quarantined with Ainsley. If you had to be quarantined, Mike, with anybody from the show, who would you pick? I mean, I think I'd want to quarantine with Adresa. I find her very funny. I think she may be a little darker than me, humor-wise, or her interests may be a little more macabre than mine. But humor-wise, she makes me laugh. I don't know. She seems like a fun person who's knowledgeable, who would who would be up on the latest, you know, COVID protocols and keeping us safe, but also kind of making me laugh along the way. I mean... Uh, obviously attraction factor i'd want to definitely probably quarantine with danny but yeah i don't know i don't think i don't know that that would be as an interesting a time as as uh, quarantining with adresa i couldn't with malcolm the screaming in the middle of the night uh you know i i am a deep sleeper but i wake up when i hear panic or screaming or if something gets knocked over like i snap out to guard to guard duty like really really quickly from my sleep so malcolm's screaming in the middle of the night would really really mess up my uh, my sleep rhythm how about you how well do you think you know me who would i quarantine with i don't know i'd say you'd probably guess malcolm or Dresa also martin oh interesting but in the in claremont though yeah not in rikers yeah but at claremont i mean but you yeah, still claremont be, yeah it's a psych I, hospital though i don't know i don't know that that room is that comfortable looking well, I mean, if you ask me, like, in a fantasy world, like, if I was to be quarantined with somebody who, from the show, who would it be? I would want Martin because I would just want, A, I would want him to say meet meep, like the uh, the Roadrunner. Uh, like he says to Jerry Bear, that was hilarious. But no, just in general, just to, like, pick his brain about, like, 23 murders and I would get the scoop if there were more murders. Yeah, I just think I would be really enthralled to, to sit with a serial killer <laughs> in a, a controlled environment for nine months. Maybe not nine months. That was a bit long, but maybe, like, the three months of lockdown. 
Listen, I got to tell you, I really appreciate how grown out and bushy Martin's hair and facial hair was at that first scene when he's still at Rikers. I mean, kudos to the costume and makeup and hair department. He always kind of looks like a grizzly man who has just come in from, you know, a trip. But he was looking particularly mountain man in that opening scene. The the COVID was the COVID was a tough time on Martin's uh, it was psyche. A little rough for him, yeah. yeah um, and that was actually one of the, my favorite questions that we asked the showrunners too. Is that Martin has some definite like serial killer tendencies or characteristics that I recognize in in other serial killers that I've. I, I know about don't know personally and that was just like their their take on it was very very interesting so and quite flattering i think <laughs> i'm gonna move on to ainsley because you know you and i talked a lot about whether or not she really remembered what happened or if she was just a little bit in shock that she actually pulled the trigger on slicing endicott's throat this episode seemed to make it pretty clear at least at this point she doesn't remember being the one who actually murdered endicott and slit his throat open do you think that the show is setting us up for a girl-in-the-box-like journey of remembrance this season for Ainsley? I think there's going to be much more on Ainsley. And yes, I think it's going to be the effects that being the daughter of a serial killer will will throw on her. Whether or not she really remembers much, I mean, like when you're five, you do remember certain things. But this might be the nature part as opposed to the nurture part. Like Malcolm got more of the nurturing from a serial killer from the time spent with his father as a child. But I think Ainsley might be more of the nature because the the situation with Endicott, it was insanely nuanced. She attacked him with a practiced hand. We, you know, she grabbed his hair, pulled his hair back. It was really tight. And not only was she slitting his throat, like that was enough. That was the death knell for him. But then she proceeded to stab him like 10 more times. That was overkill. So I feel like that might be more her nature. So I feel like that might be her journey that she has to resolve or reconcile this, this, this part of her nature. Does she reconcile it or try and deal with it? Or does she lean into it? Right. I, I, we started this conversation. And again, you and I have had conversations about the show. I and mean, we both watch the show. I covered it at Pop Culture Review with the written reviews. So you and I have talked about Prodigal Son before. And we were of those people that believed that she was on a course to become the prodigal daughter. She was the one of the two kids that was more likely to take after Martin. So the question, and I think the journey she's going to be on is as she remembers killing Endicott as it comes back to her, because I think that's definitely going to be a journey for her. I think we're going to spend a lot more time with Ainsley this season. I think the question is going to be, does she try and rebel from that and 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 move away from that the way Malcolm did in season one? I don't want to be like my father. Or does she lean into it? And does she maybe try and start taking lessons from her father? Does she actually have a taste for the blood? At the end of the day, my guess for Malcolm is that when push comes to shove and the season plays out, I feel like he won't become a serial killer. I feel like there will be some therapy for him that will keep him from fully going over the edge. I don't feel that way about Ainsley. I think Ainsley definitely has the programming in her to go full deadline serial killer. That's my nickname for her. So, and I think a worthy name to succeed the surgeon. I think deadline becomes the new serial killer. I think that's the journey, but that's the question though. And I think that's the, the question that the show has when you look at what do we do with Ainsley in season two? She's actually committed murder now. She just doesn't remember it. Let's have her get her memories back and then see what, what does she do with it? Does she fight against the impulse or does she lean into it? So, I mean, like, this was definitely a psychotic break on her part. And then the fact that she has no memory of it leads me to that, that diagnosis. 
but like she had no control, whereas the surgeon's in control and she has not done the work that Malcolm has to repress, to conceal that part of his his nature. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, where she she goes with this. But that's something that can be taught, though. I think if you probably go back to Martin's earliest kills, he probably had less control. It's something that gets refined. And Malcolm has spent literally his entire life since uh, he was older, you know, they've they've established that Ainsley was so young, she barely remembers her father as a kid uh, because he got uh, hauled away to jail So when she was so young. Malcolm has spent his whole life developing that wall, that firewall to against being like his father and to training himself to be repulsed by his father's actions, not enthralled by it. And though we may be seeing that wall break down now, Ainsley can be taught to channel her rage into control and she doesn't have the same anti-martin whitley the surgeon firewall that malcolm does which is going to make her much more susceptible to it i think yeah she doesn't have the skills that he's developed let's uh, let's hit up to danny because i think danny and jt are the last big ones that we need to talk about in this episode were you surprised that danny warned gill off of getting involved with jessica that and not in a i like jessica kind of way but kind of a i don't like jessica kind of way jessica makes you reckless gill kind of way i was surprised that she moved their their friendship needle that far like this this goes beyond just like i'm concerned for you as a co-worker like this is like i'm concerned for you on a friend level and i'm glad to see that she's allowing herself these personal connections because she's been pretty walled off like through season one i thought and then the the burgeoning friendship with malcolm i definitely want to see that go somewhere but i was surprised that she allowed her guard to come down a little bit it seemed like a different aspect of her character that we had ever seen before i mean we really spent all of season one watching danny get to know malcolm get to know who malcolm really is not just the surface level weirdo that kind of jt was mostly stuck at for all of season one he just kind of rejects malcolm as a person not that as a person he doesn't really want to be friends with mostly i, I think that does soften as the season finally wraps up but danny got to know the real malcolm so i thought it was a i thought it it, it surprised me and i think it's going to have some repercussions that she leads gill down that whole conversation and confronts malcolm about it i mean she asks mm-hmm. malcolm straight out what's going on between your uh, your mother and gill you know malcolm kind of plays dumb but she she and she even there she holds his feet to the fire that you're you're this fancy profiler and you haven't noticed what's going on there yeah she used the word blinders i thought that was very descriptive everyone on the, on the team ha- has gill as a father figure in their life but this was a next level for danny's character that we hadn't seen i feel like it was a little bit of me feels like it was a little bit of a trail to malcolm to try and and essentially say that the whitleys are people to be stayed away from it's not just jessica she's talking about there she's saying that the whitleys are problematic and gill and unfortunately jessica hears this talks about how his his dead wife used to say that the whitleys were cursed and that maybe they are Jesus, Gil, you're 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 on the precipice of pushing forward into this relationship with Jessica more than we've ever seen with these two. I don't know if you're I, a question I have for you if, is, are you pro Gilsica or not? That's the little shipper <laughs> name I've come up with. Them. Yeah, I, I actually think I was a little put off by her going this way. Like, that's not the relationship she really has with Gil. Not to mention that he is her boss. I don't know. I thought it was I thought it was a little strange. I'm curious to see where that goes, because I don't think the show introduced uses danny and those questions without us probing that further are you pro gilsica before we move on 
I think so. I, I like their, they have a, a certain comfort level and there's, there's something about being like a simpatico when you have like a shared trauma, I guess. Like, this, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, it's not uncommon for people who've gone through something together, uh, very tumultuous to, to find comfort with each other. There is this 25 year history between them. There is a comfort level there. So I, I'm pro, I'm pro Gilsica, uh, as long as he doesn't get himself stabbed again as a result of, uh, as a result of this relationship so thinking through this because this this was one of the things that kind of made me scratch my chin and go hmm in this episode was the way danny was acting i think this is where i came out on it danny is looking at malcolm as someone she may have feelings for someone that she actually may want to have a relationship with and the show has done a very good job never really creating a will they won't they they just showed a friendship that deepened into something really real more than just co-workers over the course of season one i think they did a really good pacing job on the danny malcolm relationship that being said it makes sense to me that if if she is looking to pursue a relationship with Malcolm, that she would actually try to interrupt a relationship between Gil and Jessica, because that's a lot of kissing cousin moving parts all in bed together, where your boss is dating your boyfriend's mother and your boyfriend is the girlfriend of your boss and all of you share a history with a serial killer you know there's a lo- it's a lot of complications that sounds there. very incestuous <laughs> right and so if think of it from Danny's point of view they they're by Jessica and Gil not getting together in some ways that probably makes Danny's path to having a relationship with Malcolm easier or this is Danny's way of testing the waters to see, like, if Gil has any reservations about Jessica, that would mirror some reservations she might have about Malcolm. Well, there's definitely some mirroring there. And I think that is a very good point, because I would use her warning to Gil that Jessica makes Gil act recklessly, that he went to go save her from Endicott's house of sex and death because of how he feels, that he got blinded and he got sloppy and he got reckless. Well, Danny... I would say to you as Exhibit A, JT and the backup squad are not yet at Malcolm's apartment when the executioner was there taking on Malcolm, and you didn't wait for backup. She charged in. You charged in there by yourself with a killer. So how did you do anything differently than you just warned Jessica that you just warned Gil doing for Jessica? So I think that's a really good indicator of where Danny's feelings are, that She's she's able to call Gil out on his reckless behavior, but doesn't see it in herself that she's doing the same thing. So there's an interesting moment where the the show did not shy away from sort of the events that have happened since we left them in April of 2020. Danny mentions when she meets up with Malcolm that, you know, she's dealing with a global pandemic and systemic racism and in the show's way to like nod to the real world events since the finale. So I appreciate the fact that they're showing some of the struggles that this country has gone through since then. So really not a point for discussion, I guess, but just, you know, sort of like an observation. Well, I think it's important, though, because it really she says that at the top of the episode when they're headed to the decapitated body to dead Millie, Malcolm's response really is to hand her a lollipop. I think the first lollipop sighting and the only lollipop sighting in this episode. Yeah, that was it. If anyone out there is keeping a lollipop count, I had one in this episode. Was it a Tootsie Roll Pop or was it a Dum Dum? I believe it was a I think it was a purple Dum Dum. I okay. may be wrong in a purple, but it's definitely a dumb, dumb shape. Okay. I'm, I'm pretty sure. I, it was important for her to say that at the beginning. One, because it reinforced the idea that 
the show is is taking place in a post-COVID world, which is something that we talk about with Chris and Sam. But it also was an important nod to the police overreach and brutality issues from the summer and the Black Lives Matter movement. It was important for the show to acknowledge that. There are certain real-world events that you omit for your dramatic story because it's not convenient or it's you know, too difficult, but there are some things that happen in this world. There are some things that happen in this country that you can't really ignore. The fact that the show understood that and didn't shy away from that, I give them a lot of credit. And I think it's super important because it then plays directly into JT's storyline that closes out the episode. I mean, he had a roller coaster. I mean, we start the episode learning that JT has been promoted to acting head of major crimes in Gil's absence while he recuperates, which is fantastic. Yay, JT! But then at the end of the episode, JT is getting held up. He's getting profiled by cops arriving on the scene at Malcolm's apartment, which is too, too reminiscent of real-world events the last year it is a very difficult subject that you know what they don't need to do but they are going to go down that path it seems uh we asked chris and sam if this is going to have repercussions for jt going throughout the season and and they said it is it's definitely something we're going to talk to frank next week about this show is a show that has a lot of diversity in it you have uh, uh, Spanish Americans and you have people of color playing major roles in this cast, but the show doesn't boast about it. I think we lose sight of that somehow. Because of that, this show has kind of a special duty and obligation to pay attention to that, to pay attention to this real world crisis and bring it into the show. They had teased it out with Danny saying that, you know, there's uh, systemic racism and she's a young black woman. Basically, they're, they're trying to help us reconcile some of the violence and some of the, the things that we don't understand. And TV has been a good way for us to get a handle or get a grip on some of the, the bigger cultural events that happen, the, you know, the retelling of stories, maybe in a, in a parable kind of a way. So I appreciated the fact that they did this because there, there is still a lot of anger. There is still a lot of this. And people don't necessarily feel that it always happens, that it's it maybe not a, a real world scenario. So seeing it sometimes played out in this way might make people think about it in a different way, see it in a different light. If they identify with JT on some level and seeing that this is happening to him and what it's doing to him, it might shake loose some of the, the cobwebs of people and maybe, you know, might bring the understanding a little bit more forward other than the episode where malcolm and eve go on a double date with jt and his wife at the pool hall we never get to see squishy bear jt ever we never get to see him inside the hardened shell that he has you know when he's at work and watching him kind of be broken down and worried about his career and worried about how it's going to play that he assaulted the cop and that's the only story that's going to be heard in the squad room. It was it was really heartbreaking to watch. It, I, you know, anyone who's ever been wrongly accused of anything is going to have empathy in that situation. But it's an experience that many of us will never, ever experience. Not to that level, no. And and it's an experience of being a person of color in this country. Not everyone can empathize with. We can certainly sympathize with it, but we can't really empathize with what that feels like. I applaud the show for taking on this subject and and for taking a, a stab at it, no murder pun intended, and showing us what that struggle is going to be like. They don't need to do this. The show is jam-packed with interesting uh, stories and plot lines, and they have a lot of other things that they can be talking about. And I think it's, uh, it's something for other shows to take a look at and watch how prodigal son leads by example so i'm excited to see what they do with it and how it goes forward and how it changes jt uh just as a last thought before we get to our interview 
I think it was really important also for Gil to come in there at the end and remind us that there are some good cops left. That yes. the show is not the show is not being anti cop as a profession it is taking the approach that there are bad cops out there that should be weeded out but there are still good cops in the world which is in in our world where discourse is become difficult to have is the kind of central position that we need to be to be able to have a balanced conversation about this and and i love that gil comes in there it was great to see him back on his feet and back in the squad room but also to point out that danny and jt and and himself are good cops and and we need them now more than ever. One final thing that you said that just spurred a thought. The show does have such a diverse cast in terms of the different ethnicities that you said it and it just resonated with me that it's so effortless on their part. Like they have an Asian American coroner and they have um, Danny identifies herself as a young black woman. Lou Diamond Phillips playing Gil, who's Spanish American. They have all the recipe. They have all the ingredients for the perfect recipe to deal with this level of discourse that without making it feel forced or after school after school specially yes like it's going to be really authentic i feel the same way the show can walk the line of having you know ancient weapons be involved in the plot line without feeling forced the show is going to be able to take advantage of its characters that it's already spent time establishing and really well developing and i think explore this topic in a really mature and balanced and important kind of way as our country continues to go through all of these things and and tries to find a place of healing and a place to move forward in a better world, a show like Prodigal Son can be an actual source of kind of like hope and something to look forward to, which as a show about a serial killer and a serial killer's son is, is odd, but it's where we are. So, hey, it works for me. That's going to bring us to the end of our discussion. But please stay tuned now for our exclusive interview with Prodigal Son's creators and showrunners, Chris Fedak and Sam Sclaver. After the interview, we're going to come back and wrap up. We have an Adresis Corner that we're going to talk about and uh, we'll wrap up the show after that. So we'll be right back. Enjoy this interview. Joining us tonight on The Surgeon's Files is Chris Fedak and Sam Sclaver, not only the co-creators of the shows, but also the show's showrunners. Chris, Sam, thanks so much for coming out and joining us today. Thanks for having us. Congratulations on season two. Before we get to season two, which we just watched episode one tonight, we have a ton of questions and not a lot of time, but I want to take a step back if we can. Season one was supposed to be 22 episodes. 20 got aired because of covid how did you guys finish the season? Because it seemed like it came to the uh, normal, correct course. Can you back us up a little bit in time and, and talk to us how season one all came together at the end? It came together quickly. Essentially, we were closing in on the end of season two. We had written all the episodes. We had written 22 episodes. And one of the things that helped us in a weird, crazy way is that we shoot Michael Sheen using block shooting, that we create these blocks and we, sh we shoot him. And we had to shoot him out early so that he could go off to do another project. That meant that episodes 21 and 22, the last two episodes, were filmed earlier. And then we were going to film, you know, 19 and 20. And so we got to this point where it's like as the COVID situation just grew worse and worse. And we were like, I think Sam was in New York. I had just gotten back from New York. And we were, it was like a Tuesday. I can't remember exactly what day. We were like, I don't know if we're going to finish this year. And then over like a span of hours, essentially two days, we started to realize that we weren't going to be able to finish the season. And so what we did is we took two episodes. We took those, that, that episode 19 and 20, the ones we had yet to shoot, and we turned them into two scenes. And so <laughs> essentially, which I remember seeing in the writer's room going like, 
you think we should come up with a plan? And then like and within 15 minutes, we were like, we should turn them into two scenes. The writers immediately jumped on it. And then and then we got approval from studio and network. And it was just like, everybody was moving very quickly because we knew we had a great ending. And the question was, could we set it up properly? And really in those moments, you're at the mercy of your writers. You're at the mercy of like, are we going to be able to get this done before the situation becomes too bad? And then having our cast. So it's like, I remember being on the phone with, Tom and Dermot and just saying like, guys, here's what we're going to do. And like pitching the show and the plan and they were on board and they were like, they totally got it. And in essence, what we did was we had something bigger and more concerning and scarier out there in the world that we knew that we had to you know, close up shop pretty quickly. So it was, it was definitely done on the fly, but you know, this is where sometimes I make the joke that we're all TV professionals. These, this is where you really kind of relying on like everybody being a super pro and we're lucky we had that team. It was so funny though, when Zoom was still a new thing, this must have been in April, we did a big Zoom with the whole cast. Michael Sheen had the biggest grin on his face. And he's like, hey, you know why we got to complete this season, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that project that you guys all said was a little inconvenient because we had to shoot it out of order. Look who's smiling now. And he was 100% right. So it was, a, like Chris is saying, we were professionals. We had the smartest people with us. And we got super lucky because if we had shot the episodes in order, uh, Nicholas Endicott still would have been a really nice guy who was dating Jessica, and that would have been the end of our season, which is not how we had envisioned it, and luckily not what we had to do in the end. Definitely a little bit of anticlimactic, for sure, especially compared to how where it ended up. So ending a season that you'd already had time to think about is one thing. How did you guys approach still being in lockdown for so long doing season two? How, how did that come together? Because there's no masks on screen. You guys aren't doing a Zoom season so far, at least not based on episode one. So uh, tell, tell us a little bit about the, the struggles and the approach to doing season two production. I think that if you go back and you look at the entire thing of what we've had to do since the show went down and coming back, is that the industry, and this goes beyond just our show, has had to reinvent itself. Essentially, it had to create a, essentially a new plan and a new system with unions and production and a lot of money, a lot of money to figure out a system where we can make the television show that is still exciting and amazing and is also safe. And so we have all become amateur epidemiologists. 50% of our day at some time, on some occasions are, are COVID, are all about like, how do we keep the show safe? How do we do this thing we want to do? And the amazing thing is that we've managed to do it. And I think that if you've seen episode one and two, you can kind of like go, oh my goodness, it's the show. You know, it looks great. It's fantastic. It's exciting. We ha it has scope and it looks really good. But get to that point required us to go back in time and kind of reinvent how we do everything. And it's it's been an incredible challenge, but everybody wants to work. And, and the other thing that's not, nice about our show is that it's like, it's you know, we really love working on it and the cast is a pleasure. So it's been a challenge, but we're happy to be to this point. Well, we're happy you're back for sure. Chris and I had some conversations very early on and we knew how much COVID was going to affect behind the camera. And you put all options on the table. How much of a COVID world do we want to show on our show? Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, there's a slight escapism to Prodigal Son where, uh, you know, there's a serial killer. It's not the lightest show on television. But we just felt like while there were some things that we couldn't ignore, the George Floyd murder and, and all of the protests that came, you know, there's some things that had to live in our world. But then there were some things that we were like, maybe we could be a little post-COVID on screen in Prodigal Son, where there'd still be a little bit of masks and, and we would 
you know, there wouldn't be as many people in rooms, but we made the decision early on that maybe people had had enough of COVID in their real life and would want a little bit of escape from it on screen. And, and so far, I'm really happy we did that because Lord knows, in the real world, I never want to see anyone's bottom half of their face again. Right. I would be so sad if Bellamy and Lou and Tom and Michael were masked up. So yeah, Chris is right. The, the testing cadences that we were able to fall into and our production bubble has been super safe, uh, knock on wood. So we've been able to make the same show that we've all loved. For an episode that featured an authentic French guillotine, a decapitated head, and a ninth century Norse axe, it was oddly hopeful being in a post-COVID world. So, uh, so we, uh, so I, I, you know, on behalf of the fans, we thank you for that. Oh, I'm glad we made the right choice. You never know if you're going to make the right choice or not, but this one I do feel pretty good about currently. And speaking of serial killers, I'm a big true crime fan, maybe to a disturbing degree. So um, I wanted to ask about Martin Whitley and his character. When you were crafting his character, did you draw inspiration from anyone in particular? And the only reason I ask is because he exhibits some characteristics that are synonymous with some serial killers that I'm familiar with. Not intimately, thankfully, but... Well, well, first off, I'd be really fascinated to know which ones you see a comparison to. Ted Bundy. Oh, well, I, well, I mean, when it's the charming, absolutely. Well, even even his, the way that Michael Sheen wears his hair, he's got this wild, like, curly hair to him, and Ted Bundy had mm. uh, a degree mm. of that. The intense eyes, the stare, the insane charisma, that was the one that jumped off the page at me right away. But I was just curious if, if it was intentional, if it was accidental. I'll say two things to that, and then, uh, then I think actually we should probably go back around to, uh, well, uh, we'll go back around to how we actually came up with the idea for the show. But just what's interesting about Bundy is that Obviously, we're talking about a killer and an awful person and a terrible monster. But I grew up in Florida, and Bundy was definitely one of the early killers that I first heard about when I was a kid. So maybe there is an element of that story that is baked into maybe my subconscious in a way. Of course, being raised in Florida, you have a number of crazy stories that's baked into your subconscious in a way. But um, that's something that's a really interesting kind of con- connection you've made there. The weird thing that for us is that Sam and I didn't come to the show from like a true crime perspective. We came to the show because we were talking about, you know, uh, and we didn't really like, like Sam. I, I, I was seeing you make a comedy and Sam was like, we make a drama. And like Sam comes from comedy and I come from kind of dramedies. And we were like trying to figure out what we wanted to do. And like we're sitting on the couch and we're talking about how our parents affect us and how they make us who we are and how we have defense mechanisms based on things that they've taught us. And, th- and then I think one of us said, well, what if your dad was Hannibal Lecter? Like, what if your father was a serial killer? Within 15 minutes, we're literally like, you'd be a detective, you'd be a profiler, you would be obsessed with this, you would be, and what if, he, and then Sam was like, the, you know, it's like, what if he's a great dad? And then it's like, that's where like, all of a sudden these things kind of, you know, combat, combined. And like, we were like, the bones of the show after that initial question were probably written up within hours. It's so true. It's funny when you say like, what did we base Martin Whitley off of? I, I would maybe say like Cliff Huxtable. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, <laughs> Yeah, he's the best dad in the world. Oh, and he's also a fucking monster. But like, not everyone's perfect. Yeah, yeah but yeah. you know, Rudy loves him. Like, Rudy has a really good thought about him. I, I don't know how, what Rudy thinks about Cliff Huxtable today. Not to put anyone on the spot, but that really was a big thing for us. Where we've seen enough serial killer shows to not have to worry about that as much as like, what well, what's the spin we could put on it? And it was the Cliff Huxtable. There, there's just something. And the cardigan, the way Michael wears it, and kind of his beard and his curls. and he just, We wanted him to be a great dad. 
I put the girl in the box and then I tried to kill my son. <laughs> kind of. Oh my God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's, there's something there. That's that's a season three, maybe uh, mashup crossover. Uh, <laughs> we already talked about, I mean, the episode had to do a lot of heavy lifting tonight. Not only catch us up from where we were from the, the season one, because some time has passed, some months have passed. And also it touched upon COVID. There were not a lot of attention paid to it, but enough to show us that we were kind of post-COVID world. But there was also the BLM uh, aspect to it, the police overreach, the brutality, the systemic racism, as Danny beautifully puts it. And it really all kind of came to a head at the end of the episode with JT being held up at literally at gunpoint by a squad of policemen. That seems like a game changer, especially in light of him being promoted to the acting head of major crimes earlier in the episode. And we see that. So it was a real whiplash episode for JT. Is this going to play out over the course of the season or is this going to be more of a, uh, an isolated, contained storyline for him? No, it'll play out over the course of the season. I think that like when we looked at the bigger issues that we wanted to address this season, as we were dealing with COVID and the production side of things, the BLM story in the news just became so prevalent. And like having a show about police, we knew we had to address it in some way. We had two big ideas. One was that we wanted to address it through the, the perspective and the lens of like our police officers, you know, from the Lou Diamond's character to to um, uh, Aurora and, and 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 Frank's. So I think that for us, it's like we immediately started to engage our cast and kind of go, to, well, how do we do something in this world? How does this show, which is in some ways, you know, it's very heightened. It's not exactly the real world. It's got a tone that is very specific. How can we address this? And I think that that led us to like leaning into the police side of it and what happens and, and also the research that we've done, like what happens inside the NYPD when there is this type of incident. And it's led to a lot of very interesting research for us and also, you know, a story that will play out over the over the course of the season. And I think the other thing we knew, especially Sam and I, we're two white guys. We don't have the resources and, 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 the, and the knowledge, so we have to expand out, talk to our cast, talk to our writers, and also do research and to talk to the experts and in, in, in real police officers. It was an interesting moment at the end where Gil kind of comes in and, and reminds JT that he was in the right and he didn't do anything wrong. And he says, you know, there are still good cops out there. And I'm looking at two of the best and then whatever bright is, he says, uh, which I think is an important message because it walks the line. You know, it's not a throw the baby out with the bathwater approach to the police, but also tipping the hat to it's an issue that needs to be discussed. And I think you guys did a good job with it tonight. I think, well, thank, well first of all, thank you. And, you know, and, and, and pretty much, and, and just the, the it's, it, of course, it very much speaks to the moment that a line like that, as loaded as it is, really speaks to what it means to be in 2020 and 2021. But I, again, if we've gotten it right, and this is, again, us trying to get it right, it's very much based on the fact that, like, we have an amazing writing staff and we have a cast that can go from an axe fight upstairs to like a searing moment of reality. And that's, um, uh, that's, uh, that's pretty incredible. And we're lucky to have the team we have. I know we're running low on time, but I just want to ask quickly that things seem to be changing at Claremont for Martin in tonight's episode, but also in the season to come. Can you give us a preview um, for the roles that Christian Borley and Michael Potts will play at the hospital this season? Well, I can. And actually, 
I think we can break some fun news that was yes. which is that Catherine Zeta Jones will also be joining us at Claremont. There was a, when we were looking at the things that worked from season one and we were looking at the things that could help us make season two amazing in a post in a in a COVID world, not even a post-COVID world, we did realize we were gonna have to make the show just a little bit differently. And and what an amazing opportunity we had when we realized we could tell more stories in Claremont. And we could build out this Claremont world for us, which has always been fascinating, but we've kind of only lived in Martin's cell so, and group therapy, of course. So Michael Potts is, is taking on the role of the therapist at Claremont, and he'll be very, very big coming up in episode four when there's a case that brings us to Claremont. And of course, Martin Whitley is thrilled with that prospect. And Christian will be playing Friar Pete. He's a disgraced monk uh, responsible for the friar flayings in our show. And, you know, once we started building out Claremont, we were like, well, Bright comes to Martin for cases all the time. Maybe Martin knows some other people in the prison that he could consult. So that's kind of how Christian enters our world. But he'll be with us all season as our Claremont stories start boiling over. And then Catherine Zeta-Jones is just something that, like, I, I can't believe, I still can't believe it. I think this is actually one of the first times we've been able to talk about it. We're just so thrilled that she'll be joining us as Vivian Capshaw, who runs the infirmary at Claremont, where Martin is going to get a work assignment for $3.25 a day. They'll have some bonding. Uh, nothing good will come of it, which is, which is as much as I can say about her. But um, yeah, we're doing a lot more in Claremont this season just because... Uh, who doesn't want to be in an insane asylum with Michael Sheen? I mean, when you have Martin electrocuting his cellmate and curing him, uh, I mean, Claremont's the place to be. So much good stuff, so much fun stuff happens there. Uh, how does one go about casting Catherine Zeta-Jones for uh, a procedural, you know, network TV show? That seems like a pretty great get for you guys, but also on the level of Michael Sheen and Tom Payne and Bellamy Young. Is there is there any good story behind how she came to be on the show? No, just Chris had to sell our firstborns. That was it. So it was pretty... Yeah. Um, it's an pretty investment easy. in the future. You could always buy another yeah. child. You don't get Catherine Zeta-Jones every day. We knew we had this killer part. We knew very early on we had a big, juicy part. And then, like all casting, you kind of just start looking around and seeing who's available. And as soon as her name came up as someone who she's been living in New York. That was a big thing for us with COVID. And we knew the Welsh connection. Actually, I spoke to Michael about it before we had even cast her just to see, you know, get always wanted to get his opinion. And of course he was thrilled. And then I was like, Michael, do you happen to know Catherine? And he's like, no, but I know her family because they're from the same town in Wales. So Michael knows her parents pretty well, or her brother, but he'd never worked with her. So once we started to realize that they had so much of a connection, but had never been on screen before, I think Chris and I were like, there's a chance we could get her for this role. And then we were very lucky that we wrote a character that she responded strongly to, and there were Zooms, and there were phone calls, and there was late night praying, and... um, (laughs) And it all came together. It was really a dream. Casting never works out this way. You always end up with someone great, but rarely is the first, you know what I mean? Rarely no, no, for sure. Step up to the plate, first pitch, knock it out. And it feels like we were able to do that this time. I don't, even if I'm never able to do it again, I think once was enough with this one. 
well, I, you know, tonight's episode one of season two really got the show back on track. I think I speak for everyone. I say it's great to have it back on the air. It definitely makes it feel like the world is a little more normal, especially with everything else going on literally today also. So we're super excited to be looking at season two and, and maybe get to talk to you guys again, too, as we continue to podcast every episode this season. Absolutely. I have one last question. It's a little fun one before I let you go, before the PR people yell at me. Jessica is playing a little ditty on the piano this morning, the I Say a Little Prayer, or in the, in the beginning of the episode, she's playing I Say a Little Prayer. Is that a goodbye shout out to Dermot Mulrooney? <laughs> it's, it's so funny because I think that like Sam and I, like we've, we've actually said, you know, it's like we're making a serial killer show, we're making a family show, and we're also making a little bit of a comedy. And I think that I'm a, uh, as a person who loves a romantic comedy, I think, you know, you can definitely look into that and see a little bit of a, you know, shout out to Dermot, who was just the best, just the best guy to come in and also to be there and help us out at the very end of last season, which was tricky. Dermot also played cello on our score for his episodes. So if you just, if you thought, is there anything that could be more amazing about Dermot Mulroney than his acting? He's a super accomplished celloist. That's one of my very fun trivias about our show. Oh my goodness, that is that is something I did not uncover that in doing is my research. Fantastic. What a great nugget to end it on. Guys, thank you so much for joining us and I hope to get to talk to you again. Absolutely a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, guys, we just want to say thank again to Chris Fedak and Sam Sclaver. It was such a fun interview, but my only issue with the interview was that it was not long enough. I would have loved to have had those guys for 30, 40, 60 minutes and just really pick their brains apart. There's so many things that we didn't get to talk to them about that I'm hoping we can have them on again later in the season to talk to them about and really kind of pick on the, pick their brains apart about what the, what they're thinking as they come up with this crazy, crazy show that we love so much. Sheila, I just want to end this episode by hitting a little Adresa's Corner because I think she's a favorite character of both of ours. She always brings an angle to the show that's kind of wacky and quirky. Always is good for a lighthearted moment when the show gets particularly dark or gets very serious. So let me ask you the hard questions. Does Adresa need a nickname? And is Adris that nickname? I don't know. I mean, Adrisa is such a, a, an exotic name. I've never heard that in all of my travels. I don't know if she needs a nickname. Maybe she just feels that she might need to connect on a different level. And there's a certain familiarity when someone calls you by a nickname. It might be her way of trying to connect more, especially with Malcolm. I feel that she's she's got some... I, I, I'm not going to put a label on what she feels for Malcolm because it's it, it vacillates a little bit for me. But yeah, I, I feel like it's a, it's a way to become a little bit more familiar with your your peers. I think that's right. I think that's right. I think Adresa wants desperately to be more involved in the day-to-day shenanigans that this squad goes through, not only because of her crush on Malcolm, uh, but honestly, I'll tell you, see, if you go back and watch season one again, uh, like I did get ready for season two, there's a real development, there's a real arc in her relationship with Malcolm, where it goes more from doesn't know who he is by admires his brain to knowing who he is and having a crush on him where you know and and especially after her episode where she really got to be in the action when with the embalming the embalming convention you know after that there is a there's a friendship there's a peerage 
between her and Malcolm. You know, Adresa is someone Malcolm can can go and see and talk to without all of the baggage and, and judgment that he gets sometimes from Gil, from Jessica, from Danny, certainly from JT. Adresa never, ever approaches him that way. She appreciates his darkness and his demons that he keeps at bay. Adresa likes all of that and is drawn to him for that. And that allows her to be a real safe space for Malcolm and Malcolm for her. You know, she can let her freak flag fly when she's around Malcolm in a way that she probably feels that she can't with everyone else or or blurts out and then regrets saying, you know, out loud. But she never has to feel that way with Malcolm. And I like that friendship. And I'm, I'm, I hope that we get to see more of her and him together as friends i don't ship them necessarily because i like her i like him with danny but i like their friendship that they're building and i like what they do for each other i i agree um and speaking of letting her freak flag fly were you at all surprised that uh went through a late bondage phase uh no that that is the most of course she did thing that i think i've ever heard about a character in television ever uh i love that it gave her boy scout level not tying skills um but no i was not surprised it made me laugh out loud i'm more curious about her time in hoboken than being surprised at her her snm phase so like what's going on in hoboken folks All right, guys. Well, that takes us to the end of Adresa's Corner, and that takes us to the end of episode one of The Surgeon Files, where we've been talking about the season two premiere. It's all in the execution. Definitely come back next week, where we'll be talking about episode two, but we're also going to be interviewing Frank Hart, who plays JT Tarmel on the show. So you definitely don't want to miss that. If you can head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast, that would be greatly appreciated, as well as five stars, which would be even more appreciated. It's a great way for people to find the show so that they can enjoy it as much as you do. Thanks for listening. I'm Sheila McGann. And I'm Mike Caputo. Thanks for listening to The Surgeon's Files, your unofficially official Prodigal Son podcast. See you next week. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.